I wanted to end uh, our study in the prophecy of Isaiah with uh, a summary of uh, these last uh, 26 chapters and compress uh, those chapters uh, into that which I think is uh, the singularity of the message of the prophet, uh, especially in the notion that God creates salvation and uh, leads His people home by His Word. Uh, there are a number of uh, great themes that we can uh, gather from uh, these 26 chapters. Uh, I've already mentioned a couple of them. Uh, God and His Word, that uh, God will use the Word to save and to create His people. Uh, that which begins the section, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Uh, it is a struggle to be a Christian, but God in His Word offers us comfort by continually reminding that he, us that He is with us. He will protect and preserve us and see us uh, to our eternal home. That, of course, He does that by creation and exodus. Uh, oftentimes we don't think in terms of inaugurated eschatology, but in the theology of Isaiah, and it's incredible numbers of times in which is used in the New Testament, the end-time creation for which the prophet is known has begun. And that it's begun as his people move away from spiritual Babylon to their eternal home uh, where God will reward them. Uh, inaugurated eschatology is uh, uh, a truth that is not well received in places like Oklahoma, but nonetheless, I think it's uh, the theology of Isaiah as he is used by New Testament authors. Uh, in the creation and exodus, uh, there comes forth a righteous remnant that will persevere to the end. Again, we don't think in terms of a remnant. We think that the church is the church, that everyone who names the name of Christ is going to be saved. Uh, but the prophet Isaiah, as well as all New Testament authors, deal in the theology of a righteous remnant who persevere to the end. A great doctrine of perseverance. Well, the first uh, great movement of the prophet in terms of uh, the thematic uh, presentation of our great hope is that of comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Uh, God knows that the end time exodus is full of difficulties and trials. Uh, I used to remind people that I worked with all of the time that you will hear many more no's in life than you will ever hear yeses. Expect it to come because again of great eschatological movements. How do you deal with no's? How do you deal with turndowns? How do you deal with difficulties? You find your comfort in God and His Word. Uh, because God promises deliverance from Babylon and a new beginning, uh, Judah is told to take comfort and to make preparation uh, to wait for Him in the end-time exodus. And to that end, the end-time Word is going to create the nation out of Babylon, start them on their journey, and make them new. It's the same reality that occurs to each of us. And how does God do that? Uh, by His Word. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for God. Notice the word voice. The Word of God is going to call and introduce salvation. 
That's very interesting and should not go unnoticed in terms of inaugurated eschatology that Mark in his gospel quotes this text as having fulfillment in John the Baptist announcing the coming of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 1 and verse 3. Jesus, of course, when John is thrown into prison, makes a profound eschatological statement in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. I recite this text only because Oklahomans struggle with it. We don't think in terms of inaugurated eschatology. But again, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So all of the prophecies of Isaiah, if you will, collapse on this one verse. The kingdom has come. Uh, The king has risen. The king has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling now, uh, spiritually, advancing his kingdom, gathering his people uh, for the last great exodus to heaven. The nation is reminded of the centrality in all of this of the divine word. And so Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. It's a reference to mankind and all of its pomp and circumstance. Uh, That kingdoms come and go. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God is forever. And the word of God is going to create the nation. Uh, It's a great parallel to Exodus chapter 2. God created the nation out of Egypt. He's going to recreate again the nation out of Babylon. It's true for us because God is creating us out of the spiritual Babylon, which is where we live today. Uh, And God will lead them in a new Exodus back home. Uh, How is that journey going to go? It's going to be difficult. Uh, I'm always reminded of so many Christians I meet. They seem to be going well for a season, and then they encounter a difficulty in life. And what do they do? They give up because they begin to think, well, God hasn't met me and helped me and provided for me and given to me all the things that I need. What God says we are to do, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's a reminder that the new exodus sometimes is a perilous journey. Nevertheless, we're to wait for the Lord. He will give us strength. By the way, Moses recites this same journey for the children of Israel coming out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. He tells them that they will mount up on eagles' wings. It's reoccurring in the Exodus from Babylon. It occurs every day in our life when we wait upon the Lord and look to Him to give us strength, that we mount up on wings as eagles. That theme reoccurs again in Exodus chapter 12, speaking of our own exodus as God cares for us in the wilderness. His first agent to provide salvation is a political one in Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor, 
attesting to God's sovereignty over the nation. What happens is that Cyrus is going to invade Babylon and almost in a day overtake the entire nation. Eventually he will let the people go. That's a remarkable uh, agent of God's power because who lets slaves go? You want to keep them around, keep them in bondage, have them work for you so you can have a life of leisure or whatever it is you have so that they can enrich you. No, God works in the heart of Cyrus to let the people go. Not only does he do that, but he opens the treasury where the vessels of the temple of God had been stolen out of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. He sends them back in fulfillment of God's Word, to stand up the temple, to reinstitute proper worship, and again, to let the people go. God's sovereignty over civil rulers expressed in Cyrus doing the will of God as a political agent. There's a great application of this uh, that I bring to you uh, that we need to be reminded of as Christians. Uh, Volume one of God's word and revelation is the creation. God creates. He creates not only the physical creation, hangs all of the stars, the great luminaries, the great forests, the great rivers, the great seas as an expression of his power, but he also creates natural law by which he governs the universe. We forget that, that God in His providence rules over this creation, providing and protecting His creation by His providence. Natural law is one way He does that. The application I would make for you is quite telling in our own country because politicians come and go because they're like the grass that withers. They're like the flower that fades. Only the Word of God is forever. But oftentimes, politicians think that they can create salvation when only God can create. I was reminded of this in my own life a number of months ago. I was driving with some friends through the city of Denver. And they would point to a house and say, that house is on the market for $700,000. And I'm saying, that's a $700,000 house? There's something wrong here. I didn't really know what was wrong until my brother-in-law told me about two weeks ago, the politicians in Denver told general contractors that if they built a condominium, they had to warranty it for 10 years. How does a businessman prepare for that which he does not know? Well, he doesn't. He withdraws from the market. So there's a shortage of housing in Denver. What happens when there's a shortage of housing? Price goes up. What I'm simply trying to tell you is that politicians cannot abrogate natural law, whether it's economic law or environmental law or the laws of the seas and the oceans which will stand forever until God is finished with them. And for a politician to think that he can rule over economic law is pure folly. And that's an expression. Politicians think they create salvation. They do not. What they create more often than not is chaos. And what comes out of chaos is tyranny. What God does with chaos, only God can do. He creates out of chaos salvation. One of the great themes of the entire Bible 
Out of the chaos of slavery in Egypt, he creates a nation. Out of chaos, slavery in Babylon, he creates a nation. And out of the chaos in the modern world in which we live, he's creating salvation for his people and gathering a people for himself. Uh, The nation, interestingly enough, but so true for all of us, is sometimes we're unhappy with God's choices. They don't like Cyrus. They don't want a political agent. They want a messianic agent to come and defeat the nations and to resurrect the nation of Israel to be the vice regent of God upon this earth. In their unhappiness, God confronts them. Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first, I'm the last, and there's no God besides me. In other words, it's his choice. Because he is sovereign, he can choose whomever he wishes to choose. And at this juncture in the history of the nation, his choice is Cyrus, who is a political ruler, who will accomplish the will of God. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 45, uh, verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Skip down to verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. They're unhappy with God's choice of Cyrus. God warns them. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. Christians, be careful about quarreling with God. We live in a fallen universe. Difficult things are going to happen to you. Hope in God. Don't quarrel with Him. Trust Him by persevering rather than arguing with Him. The other thing that God does in this first section, beginning in chapter 40, is God reminds them of the impotence of their idols. Isaiah chapter 46, in verse 3, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. That God is going to carry His people. When we trust Him, He carries us. As His people, He carries us even today. Thank God He is the one doing the carrying, for it were not so. None of us would ever reach the end. The journey is too arduous and difficult, it's too compressed, but God carries us. The point of that is their idolatry. Uh, Look at verse 7. They make an idol. They lift upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from his distresses. The point is, God does not have to be carried. All the idols that they are carrying around is the testimony that they're worshiping false gods. Because God does not have to be carried. Rather, He carries us. Reminded of this in our own culture. We make some type of figurine. And we carry it around even in the church. My friend, if it has to be carried, it's an idol. You don't not want to be called an idolater when you profess the name of Jesus Christ. 
Furthermore, he rebukes Israel for her nominalism and continued idolatry, lack of witness, and he reaffirms his promises and reissues the command to get out of Babylon. Isaiah chapter 48, verses 20 and 21. Go forth from Babylon. Declare the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the ends of the earth. The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. Leave Babylon. By the way, this text speaks to us because in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 4, God tells the professing Christian church to leave spiritual Babylon. That this theme of Israel in captivity is the theme that applies to us today. Because we live in spiritual Egypt. But God's going to redeem us. He's leading us out of spiritual Egypt. A place of profound idolatry. How are we to respond? Get out. Join the exodus. Be faithful. Persevere. And all of this is a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance and a greater agent. So beginning in chapter 49 to chapters 55, God promises deliverance and restoration in a true servant's son and his offspring who trust Him. The agent is the true Israel, meaning that God has started over. Chapters 49 to 55. And of course, this is the point of the great servant songs of Isaiah. Because the one true servant reconstitutes Israel in himself. And the servant songs attest to this reality. Uh, Isaiah chapter 49 in verse 2 and 3. Speaking of the great servant, he has made my mouth. Notice mouth, the Word of God, one of the great themes of the entire prophecy. He has made my mouth like a sharp sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver, and he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. Uh, Christians in Oklahoma struggle with this, but what God is announcing in Isaiah is that Jesus Christ is the true Israel. He's reconstituting Israel in Himself so that all who identify with the great servant Son become Israel in Him. In contrast of their desire for a glorious servant to defeat their worldly enemies and to exalt them, the true servant Son comes first, first, in an unassuming appearance to make atonement for our sins, to remain silent in His death, and yet is rewarded and exalted. Simply a compression of all of the theology of the fourth servant song, Isaiah 52.13-53.12. to Speaks to His humble origins, His rejection, and the seeming unlikely prospect of success causes Israel to turn away. That's not the servant they bargained for, but it's the servant that God gives. Learn, my friend, to accept what God gives because He is the true Israel. And He is the path to glory. He comes first to save spiritually. 
We struggle with that in Oklahoma. The health and wealth movement is very present in Oklahoma. Trust God, he will make you rich. Trust God, he will heal you of all of your diseases and give you big cars, make you prosperous. That is an over-realized eschatology that is not for this age. It's for the second age. This age is the age of spiritual salvation. True physical glory will come later when Christ comes again. But we mess up our theology when we do not understand the reality of the calling of the first great servant son. God promises this servant success. Let's look at this momentarily. Isaiah 53, uh, verses 10 and 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. My point in all of this is that the first charge of the great servant son who reconstitutes Israel and himself is a spiritual charge to come to justify his people. Glory will come later. But in the interim time, we're to march to glory in the great exodus because we're the sons of the new creation. And we must not forget that, that glory awaits us at the end of the age as we persevere to the end. So that phase one of the new, test, of the new creation is spiritual. It's interesting to me that New Testament authors quote and allude to Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. Something radical is happening in the prophet, and the New Testament authors acknowledge it. My point in that citation is that the creation is now, the exodus is now. It's also interesting that New Testament authors allude to and quote the fourth servant song, Psalm 40 six times, attesting that Jesus is the messianic servant son who inaugurates phase one of our salvation by saving us spiritually from the inside and the outside will come later. The New Testament also is the place where we find fulfillment of creation and exodus themes. On a number of times I've quoted to you Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But Christ is the firstborn of the creation. What creation? The creation foretold in Isaiah. I create light. He is the light. He is the firstborn of the creation in His resurrection as He conquers the grave. And He creates all things. All things, Paul says in Colossians, were created by Him and for Him that he might have first place in everything. One of the ways that you exhibit that you are the son of the new creation is that you make Christ first in every aspect of your life. The Exodus theme, turn with me if you would to Revelation chapter 12. Uh, many Oklahomans uh, discount this truth. I'm just simply parroting the truth of uh, John, who authors Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 14 to 16. Notice the recapitulation of the theme. 
The wings of the eagle were given to Israel out of Egypt. The wings of the eagle were given to Israel in their journey out of Babylon. Notice what John says of us. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to a place where she was nourished there for time, times, and half a time in the presence of the serpent. That's our exodus. Our eagle is bearing us up on its wings, nourishing us and caring for us and providing for us. Notice what the serpent does, verse 15. Pours water out like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away by the flood. It's a recapitulation of Pharaoh trying to drive the children of Israel into the Dead Sea where he can drown them all. But the earth helps the children of Israel and God makes a passageway of dry ground. What does God do for the church? Revelation 12, 16, And the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of its mouth. The Exodus theme. Recapitulation. Over and over again, Exodus, Isaiah, the book of the Revelation, speaking to the church. Uh, the woman is the messianic community. We are part of that community. We are its sons and daughters. If God did not help us, we would never make it. But He does, because He bears us along with wings as eagles. In other words, the end time creation and Exodus are now. We must understand that. We are the sons of the new creation. We're the sons of the last exodus. We're to persevere, keep moving, keep going forward, hoping, trusting, knowing that God controls our times. He will see us safely to the end. Of course, the physical creation, Israel fails to believe this and rejects the servant son and rejects phase one of salvation. It falls into chaos and ruin. God is not to be denied. The failure of the nation will give way to a remnant and restoration in a new creation. Isaiah 56-66 to They return to their old haunts and ways. And God reminds them again of the impotence of their idols. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you but the wind will carry all of them away and a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. God moves on. In our lives, he moves on by establishing peace. The great servant son makes peace for us uh, with God. Isaiah 57, verse 19 creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, I will heal him. Uh, the Apostle Paul quotes this text in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17 in the new Israel where God brings Jew and Gentile together and makes peace between the two. It is a radical expression of the new creation. I am amazed and amused every day in our culture where politicians are desperately trying to make peace between various groups of people, even including gender peace. 
It's the folly of politicians who can't create anything. God creates it in the new birth. If you want peace, you go to the servant's son. You sue for peace. Only he can give it. The servant's son is also a warrior that cannot be denied. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 17. And he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as its mantle. But this text speaks to the church's identification with Christ because in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14, the church is told to put on this very same armor. Put on the armor of God so that you can resist the devil. It's the armor of the Savior. You and I are being chased by the great dragon. He's trying to seduce us with false deceptive words. How can we withstand him? Well, God will protect us, but we as Christians are to be responsible. We're to put on the full armor of God. We're to be clothed with Christ. Validating that in Christ, the church is true Israel composed of Jew and Gentile. The servant son's message is recapitulated over and over in the prophet, but one place where it's profoundly evident is Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. Again, freedom to prisoners who are in bondage in spiritual Egypt. He comes to grant them freedom and to set them on a new exodus to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus goes into the synagogue. Luke chapter 4, verse 21. The attendant gives him the Scriptures. He opens it to this verse and he reads it to the synagogue. Listen to what happens in Luke chapter 4, in verse 21, he closes the book and gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and every eye in the synagogue was upon him. And this is what he says. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The great prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled in Christ and in all who identify with him. I'm not sure why this theology is so controversial in Oklahoma today, but it just is. But it's not my theology, it's the theology of Jesus. He has already told us in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 that the time is fulfilled. What time? The time of the new creation, the time of the last great exodus, the time of the great year of Jubilee, when prisoners are set free. How is it so? He sets us free by Himself, by His redemptive work in phase one of our salvation. If you're not a Christian, you are still in bondage. The only way you will ever experience true freedom is by bowing before the great servant Son and by believing and hoping in Him. 
because only in Him is there restoration. Fulfillment is in Christ. We read this morning as our text a great reminder of the new creation. Isaiah 65. For behold, verse 17, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And we're to be glad and to rejoice in Him. These great creation themes are everywhere in the New Testament. We've gone over the verses countless times. Uh, permit me one more to remind us that the creation is now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. The Apostle Paul is alluding to Isaiah chapter 65. The creation has begun. The old has passed. We are new in Him. The old has lost its grip on us. So lose your grip on it. And start the exodus and continue to persevere. About rejoicing in Jerusalem. My, my, how we have struggled with this in Oklahoma. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 26. The Jerusalem above is, present tense, is our mother. She births us a new creation. She makes us new. We are the sons of the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the great city where our every hopes lie and that will come to pass because she is our mother. Great physical imagery. Something profoundly spiritual between a mother and her children. She watches over them, nurtures them, protects them. The Jerusalem above is our mother. We should rejoice in her, in her great care and providence. So that we participate in the new heavens and new earth by believing and trusting in Christ our Savior. And furthermore, we manifest our identity with Him by bearing witness of Him. That is the torch that is passed to us as evidence that we are the sons of the new creation. Uh, let me illustrate this for you in the life of the Apostle Paul. Isaiah chapter 49, the second servant song. In verse 6, God the Father says to God the Son, I will make you a light to the nations. Uh, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul quotes this text, not of Christ, but of himself. Meaning that in his witness to the Gentiles, he is identifying himself with the mission of Christ. Acts chapter 13, verse 47, For, the, for thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul is identifying with the mission of the servant's son. So should we. We're to take the light to the nations to identify with the mission of the servant's son. That's why we engage 
in preaching the gospel, in supporting missionary endeavors, because we should recapitulate the mission to Jesus, the mission to the Apostle Paul in our own church. And by the way, I think we do. I applaud you uh, for that. Uh, the Apostle Paul says of the church in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, we're a light shining in a dark place, reminding people that there is only hope from spiritual bondage in Christ. And out of the creation and exodus comes a righteous remnant. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster. There's the people of God that is the cluster, but among the cluster there is new wine. And one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it, so I will act on behalf of my servants. Uh, this theology in my mind is recapitulated in John chapter 15, notice what Jesus says. He's really telling us that he's the new Israel. Isaiah, pardon me, John chapter 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine. So there is a vine. That's not what we're after. We're after in the midst of the cluster of grapes, the true wine that is sweet and precious. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. What is he telling us? That we should identify not with the vine that is the old Israel, but the true vine which is Christ, the true Israel. And what does he say that we are to do in verse 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Every day in our exodus we're to trust Christ. For apart from him... We can do nothing because he is the true vine and the true Israel. Reminders to who we are. Let me compress these 26 chapters even more into a single sentence by way of a summary. God will deliver out of the chaos of judgment politically in Cyrus chapters 40 to 48, and spiritually in the servant son, chapters 49 to 55, who will affect the restoration of a righteous remnant, including Jews and Gentiles, and the eschatological new creation. And this remnant will bear witness and word and deed to the Lord as deliverer and to his glory, chapter 56 to 66. The entire 26 chapters in one sentence. But let's remember what it says to us. He creates us eschatologically for his glory and true witness, to bear witness to the light and to keep moving forward for the glory that is at the end. So the purpose is to get us to believe in Jesus as the creator, to trust him as over and against idols, and to persevere in the final exodus. To persevere in the final exodus. His exodus. He proclaims the way. He is the way. Don't make your own. That is epidemic in the Christian church. Well, God has his exodus and I have my own. That's the way of profound danger. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the final exodus. He is the path. He is the light and the lamp unto our feet that we might walk in His path and not our own. And in that way, we will arrive home and fulfill the purpose for which God created us. Isaiah 66 and verse 20. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord, conveyed in all manners of transportation, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Isaiah also does something else for us as Christians. He reminds us of the shallowness and the danger of our culture today in which we live. It is a place of profound danger. It's a place that's full of idols. Uh, Let me remind you of this in a couple of ways. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups mixed with wine for destiny. They have two idols. Two idols. Fortune and destiny. Reminded in our culture how many casinos there are where people go to bow before Lady Luck that she might bless them. My friend, there is no lady luck. There is lady wisdom personified in Jesus Christ. You want to follow and come to a place of blessing, go to lady wisdom personified Jesus Christ and give your heart to him. I do not know if you've ever been to a casino. I would encourage you someday to go because it will remind you of the folly and the idolatry of our own profoundly shallow age. And it will imprint upon your mind the importance that there is no blessing in lady luck. It's all a sham. I'm not not saying some people don't win. I'm just saying... It's only a sham to get more people to come and to worship at a false god. The other thing that's so profoundly true in our culture is its profound shallowness where we have so much, but we really have so little. And there is an incredible leanness to our soul because we're outside of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 13 and 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, notice the Lord God says it, Behold, my servant shall eat, but they shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Profound leanness of soul in our culture. Reminded of this in my own life. Went to the hospital yesterday to visit a friend of mine, lives on my street, professes to be a Christian. He told me of his best friend, took his own life. I happen to know this man, profoundly successful businessman. Just could never put it together. For whatever reason, it happened. About a month ago, an acquaintance of mine in the high school that I attended, when I was a senior, he was a junior, profoundly successful attorney. Not 300 yards from my own home, 
went into his backyard and ended his life. How could it be? So much to eat, but we're still hungry. So much to drink, but we're still thirsty. Because there's a leanness to our soul because we know not the creator of the soul. From 2000 to 2016, there was a 34% increase in the suicide rate in America. Why is that? Because we've lost our way. Because we have no real hope. Only the Christian has true hope and true light and a true way in the great servant son and a true purpose. When you lose your purpose, you lose your way and you lose hope. And sometimes you lose your life. We believe in everything but nothing. And there is less and less to live for and to hold us in difficult times. Another great illustration of this profound shallowness of our culture my own life. I used to listen to a, a radio station early in the morning where men would uh, talk about uh, political and uh, economic affairs. I enjoyed their economic analysis, uh, not because I needed to be schooled in it, because I studied that at the university, but because they gave profound anecdotal evidence to the truth of my own philosophy. Now, one day I turned on the radio and these men were gone. There was a program on the paranormal. Really? The paranormal? Think of that word, for example, just momentarily. The paranormal. In other words, that which is not normal. The great dark spirit world. About a month ago, I said, well, surely, surely Oklahomans won't support the paranormal. I turned on the radio, went back to the same station, hoping to find my two prognosticators, and I was told that Soon they were going to interview a medium who could teach us to talk with the dead. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me in Oklahoma? That's how profoundly shallow we have become that we reject the only pro proper revelation with God and His Word for improper revelation with talking to the dead. It's a sheer folly of our culture because we have rejected the word of God for talking with the dead. Say it isn't so. Say it not true in Ashkelon, but it is. Because we have rejected the only authorized way to God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our guide, ladies and gentlemen, is Christians at Grace Bible Church is recognizing that the creative Word of God, the Word of the Lord, that the Word of God that stands forever, has created us new, made us new creatures. And He gives us not only the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, but He gives us the written Word in Scripture that shows us the way to Him that we might come to the end. It's a great illustration of this in history. Frederick III convened the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563 to propagate the Reformed faith. Very interesting to me that a German politician was so concerned about the souls of his citizens 
that he wrote or had written for them a great catechism. Would that our politicians today would fulfill their true purpose. Frederick III stood before the Holy Roman Emperor of the First Reich at the Diet of Augsburg. It was convened to settle a number of difficult religious issues. He stood to give an answer. I don't want to look at his answer. I want to look at the symbolism of his standing in the Diet of Augsburg. Because next to him, with an open Bible, was his son. Do you understand the symbolism of that? His son holding an open Bible. The Bible, the word of the Lord, the Bible that is the path to the end time glory of God, the Bible that speaks to spiritual salvation only in the servant son. You reject that open Bible to your peril, to a howling wilderness, to visiting graves, to talk with the dead. It's all sham and folly. It's all idolatry. An open Bible, that was the symbolism given to us by a political ruler. Would that we had such men today. Well, we do. The God-man Jesus Christ, the Word of the Lord, capital W, the incarnate Savior, lowercase w, the Word of the Lord. Our guide is the eternal Word who will see us through the judgments to the heavenly city of Zion and the home of glory. The word written and incarnate will not fail us. And so, the charge of the prophet Isaiah to each of us is to hold fast that word in holding fast to Jesus. Holding fast to that word, which is the word of the Lord, and to persevere in it to the end. Well, God will reward us with glory without end. Isaiah chapter 40 to Isaiah chapter 66. The word of the Lord is forever.